Hello, I'm Stephen Fry, a trustee of the Royal Academy of Arts and very proud to be so. Welcome to our podcast. Clearly this comes off the back of this wonderful exhibition that I hope you all get a chance to see afterwards if you haven't already. And one of the themes out of this exhibition that is quite clear is that particularly for the Impressionists, the garden was a wonderful escape. It was this beautiful private oasis in an increasingly industrial and urban world. And I think that's something that everybody in this room can probably recognise about gardening. But I just thought we'd start off by looking at what gardening means and being out in green spaces means for all of you. So maybe if we kick off with Wendy, how do you feel about your garden? What's important? Well, yes, it's always been important as a a refuge. I live right in the centre of London, and there isn't a blade of public green space. There isn't a blade of grass where I live in Fitzrovia. So it was really important to create some green. But I turned the garden into an edible garden as an experiment and as also in a way of showing that you could grow practical things in an urban garden because I was being confronted by lots of people in my world, which is the architectural world and planning world, who were saying that's not possible. And I wanted to show that actually you could do something with a roof other than grow sedum. Richard? It has for me always been a fight. Although, of course, gardening is seen as a, a tranquil and peaceful and, and nurturing activity, um, it, it is naturally a bit destructive as well, and, and that's the path I've taken. Though the fight's changed over the years. Um, it, initially, it was against the, the neglect um, that was widespread around um, Elephant and Castle um, in, the, in the mid part of the last decade. And whilst it's still there... The, the fight now is with hanging on to patches uh, given the onslaught of piazzification and, um, and gentrification and all that. So I'm, I'm still where I was 12, 12 years ago. The gardening continues. For how long, I don't know. <laughs> but I've, I've saved, a, I saved a few patches from, from uh, Yorkstone. In all that fighting, do you not find any... That makes it sound like it's quite hard work. Do you not find joy in it? Well, it, it's, it's a strange thing, but... Of course, it's very relaxing, but it's about directing that that, that frustration and anger into something that is positive. But it's sort of, it's self-sustaining, really, because in doing it, you're reminded of the (laughs) neglect and the the preciousness of these spaces, um, that that the moment of calm and, and serenity comes just afterwards, just after the dig. Is this sort of high of, ah, oh, look at it, look at it, isn't it good? And of course, the moments afterwards, just caught glimpsing um, the, the, the plants thriving and succeeding uh, against the odds, against this tough landscape that they exist in. And John, I suppose you don't so much garden, but enjoy the delights. Well, when I was on the way here, I was speculating as to whether I was the least qualified speaker who'd ever come to the Royal Academy. Uh, knowing nothing about art and even less about gardening. Um, What I tend to do is look at the city as um, a a network of wild spaces and lots of peripheries and borders and overlapping areas. And um, kind of Richard's saying that he's protecting these areas. For me, I'm overwhelmed with areas that that are are useful to me. I look at Greater London or Central London, perhaps not exactly where you live, but but absolutely boundless opportunities for foraging. I did used to have um, an allotment plot, and I I gave up on it because I was so interested in the things that were growing around it, not the things that were actually growing in it. So uh, my take's a bit different, really. So what would your ideal... What is your... Like, what is your... Without giving away any of your favourite spots because I know they're all they're all over you can have all of my favourite spots they're all over London but what makes a good foraging spot for you um something that's probably away from busy roads and somewhere that is uh, neglected to a degree um I think a lot of the parks are are looking at uh helping wild spaces exist now which they didn't used to be perhaps maybe not so much the royal parks who tend to have a slightly more fascistic approach to the way that they're managed um, but certainly certainly lots lots of the parks in North London and East London um, anywhere where there's a decent body of water 
is useful, so you get different kind of diversity. And um, I suppose thinking at, at it from a sort of permaculture point of view more than a traditional gardening point of view, anywhere where there's borders and edges and periphery and overlap in different environments makes, makes for a good foraging environment. I mean, London's amazing. London's a microclimate, and London's very, very diverse. And we've got uh, an awful... Um, we've got masses of plants that have been planted that turn out to have edible uses, things whether they've been uh, put in by Victorian park planners or, or present-day people. And then we've got all the wild plants that are hardy and robust and militant and don't care about the fact that it might look like a big grey blob on Google Earth and they'll just carry on growing. So for me, for me it's playground. And what are, um, just can you give us a few examples of like unusual foraging finds that you find in a city that you wouldn't expect, maybe? Well, I walked from my house to Arsenal Tube Station and it takes me about three minutes and I could have, had I wanted to, sort of nibbled my way there as I went. There was some mallow leaves, there's a tiny little nature reserve come park and I stuck my head in and the wild garlic's just starting to pop up. Uh, cherry plums have got blossom on them at the moment. It's got a gorgeous kind of almond oil essence flavour to it. Um, I'm literally surrounded all the time. And February, you would think... I mean, it's cold, isn't it? It's midwinter. This, this has to be the least appropriate time of year for foraging. I could probably go into a nice park and find sort of 50 different species of things to eat, I would have thought. I'm up to about 170 different edible plants from my local park. And not because I tried to come up with a clever figure. It's just I live there, and that's... That's what I'm up to. Which just proves that there is a lot... I mean, like you have said, there's a lot of edible ornamentals, essentially. So yeah. you, you, you do well off us, us gardeners. Yeah, I do. And I'm still discovering loads and loads of stuff because there's a lot of stuff that's not really come onto my radar yet. There's a lot of uh, I don't know, sort of shrubs that I haven't taken very much interest in yet. And, and once I find out though what they are, it's, it's constant learning. I've had to slightly learn some of the language of the gardener in order to communicate with people who are interested in gardening. Because call, I'd call it Larkspur because it's interesting, but then a gardener might call it Delphinium. So I've, mm. had, to, I've had to learn to communicate with people. <laughs> I should point out that these lovely pictures which are going round are... Um, Wendy's garden on her rooftop, in case anybody wants to know, just showing how much diversity you can get. How big is your garden? Um, it's about four metres by five metres, so tiny. Right. But inter interesting about diversity, when I, st I, when I decided to grow food, I actually took everything out except a few, it was a couple of potted roses, which I thought would, would be nice to keep, and put in new soil. So it was a bit of a dead garden for the first year. But now, five years later, well, the slugs came in pretty quickly. Um, then the birds came to eat the slugs. Um, we've had mice get a little bit close. You know, so, so you wouldn't think that you'd have a, an ecosystem in a tiny little garden, but like the ladybirds are there now, all the little hoverflies. Um, and wild bees as well, it, right in the centre of London. And if you look at the surroundings, you see nothing. You see nothing growing. So I think that's quite extraordinary, that they're all there somehow, and you just give them a little space, and they all grow. And I never kill an aphid. I never kill anything that comes up there, because they all sort themselves out. And I'm the top of the food chain, and I eat the, <laughs> eat the, eat the edibles. Um, I suppose another thing that sort of comes out, going back to the exhibition a little bit, was that it sort of, I think it spans almost 100 years. And during that period, it was the, I mean, it was the kind of almost the high point of making parks. It was a really big time for parks to, you had Houseman redesigning Paris, across Europe actually. You have a lot of this change in space and so there's two things that happen you get private gardens for the middle classes which is why you get the likes of money and whatnot getting to paint his lovely garden but you also get public green space and um you know and we do very well off that public green space because it's around us now but um with increasing urbanization and with all the changes that we're seeing to our cities particularly somewhere like london which is just 
you know, getting so jam-packed. I wonder what you all feel about the parks that are around you and what you'd like to see in future, future parks and how the city would take in that kind of green space. If, if I may start. So, um, of course, we should remember that one of the reasons for parks was as a, a political safety valve for, for the potential rabble to let off steam. Um, or, to, or to wash, in the case of Victoria Park. <laughs> yeah. um, and um, I, I would encourage, whether it's um, revolution in the air or just everybody's general stress levels um, could be um, improved by not seeing parks uh, and green space as such a specified zone. Um, whilst we're living in an era now where parks are under threat, you know, budgets are being cut back for the first time in, in, in a long time after years of reinvestment, um, generally parks are pretty well protected from masses of redevelopment. The spaces that are not are in the council estates, which many politicians are eyeing up to, to build on because these green, huge green areas are, are barely ever classified as having any value um, more so than you know, concrete pathways or car parks. Um, and, but, but what I've been campaigning for is, is, along with the vast road improvement network that's um, going on across London and, and, and is being encouraged in other cities to improve so-called improved uh, cycling and pedestrian environments, is, is planting. And it's such a huge missed opportunity with so much um, engineering going on that open ground, that's all we need, open ground rather than Yorkstone and, and concrete everywhere. Um, to, to lift our, our, our spirits in the thoroughfares as we go about, rather than just at designated playtime when we might go into a park. Um, we need to integrate it in, into the busiest thoroughfares. And then of course there are widespread benefits from that. Um, and it needn't be even looked after by the city. Mm. Um, it, it, those could be seen as canvases for street art, horticultural street art. Wendy, you have a kind of a professional, your professional life really takes you into, or did take you into that whole element of planning and around. And I wonder what your perspective on, particularly around the fact that we aren't going to have so much money for yes. public parks. Yes. Well, I, I actually think there's an unintended consequence of the lack of money in parks because a lot of them are becoming less manicured. And actually, I'm, I'm, we, were, we were berating how public trees are cut into boxes these days. They can't just grow as trees. And, and actually, I think what you need so much when you live or work or visit a city is that sort of profusion that wilder places create. And certainly in my local park, which is Regent's Park, they're leaving great swathes as, as wild ground because they can't afford to cut it. I think that's fantastic. I'm not sure whether any of the Is grass... Is that actually the reason? Because I, I thought it was intentional, and I thought, oh, that's so nice. There's like a wild area at the top, and it's just to do with budget. Well, um... I, that's such a shame. I, I, I suspect it's because it's they can't afford to cut it. The, the, the corollary of that is when they do cut, they cut the grass so short that it's probably going to die because they only cut it, you know twice a year or something, and particularly the council estate. We did a fantastic art piece in a council estate once where we, uh, the artist created a maze in the long grass, and then the day before it was to be open to the public, the council came along and cut the grass. <laughs> <laughs> so um, I think there are benefits, and I think we, the, the initiative of local people, because the council doesn't do it, mm is another potentially strong and interesting one because like in Fitzrovia where I live, not far from here, we're planning to take up paving stones and plant some more natural planting in areas where people never walk. And, and how are you going, I mean, you can't, Richard might go and just pull up the paving, but most people would feel a little bit nervous about doing that. And clearly somebody owes them the paving and so you have to go about getting permission. How do you get permission? Yes to turn your boring paving into a garden? <laughs> well, um, one has to get the, councils on, the council on one side. And um, our local group spent an awful lot of time 
telling the councillors what we want to do, showing them some of these awful areas, explaining to them that things can be different, that we can do something and it's, well, will it be a maintenance problem? And, you know, if we can convince them that it's not a maintenance problem and sort of slowly what you guys are doing, the pressure of that recognition that things can be different, you know, even Westminster City Council is beginning to listen. So what are your top tips to getting your council to listen to you? Um, invite them to drinkies parties, I think, is probably... <laughs> well, no, actually, the councillors have been to see my rooftop garden. They, they come and have mint tea on the roof. And they're, of course, enchanted. So, so I had one round for tea. I gave him fruitcake. <laughs> and he said to me, the thing is, Richard, I really don't understand what you do around here because um, the council look after this fantastic lavender field near Morley College. It's wonderful. I remember noticing it when I first came here. It's a tremendous job. Um, and I pointed out that actually this was our largest gorilla garden that I'd been looking after for a decade by then. So I, I think, yeah, I definitely have a communication problem that um, I just need to be covering these gardens with advertising placards <laughs> so that people know that it's not the council's work. But that, that's my, my strategy generally, is just to get on with it, and they, they assume they have done it. So permission is secured through ignorance. Um, and I, I, I have a smaller booze budget. If you could, as a forager, get to dictate which way parks were going, other than, because we know you like the wild bits, what would you be looking for in your park? Uh, that's a good question. I think perhaps one of the problems that the parks have got is that they're all their own profit centres now, aren't they? Which means they've got lots of external pressures. So a lot of the parks hold festivals and things like that, which damage a lot of the trees in the park and the soil gets compacted. I'd like to see the people who are organising the festivals or the parks and authorities themselves looking at doing something to sort of re-aeriate the soil. I know in, in, in Clissold Park, where, where I am in, in Stoke Newington, there's one area of the park that's sort of like the designated festival area and they have four or five different events there and that's the area where all the trees have died. Oh, it's a huge sort of swathe where... That's it. You've just got dead trees, and, and that could have been avoided. So I think sort of um, with the pressures that they've got put on them, perhaps a bit more sensible management, really. I, I like... I, I, I honestly thought it was down to clever decision-making that lots of the areas of the parks were being allowed to go wild. I thought, isn't that nice? The councils have really got that behind this, but now you tell me it's just down to budget cuts. Well, I think in their defence, because I, I know a number of park <laughs> managers, I think that it was one of those... Um, more enlightened moments where you went, yeah. we're spending a lot of money on cutting. Actually, it's not good for the environment. Yeah. Therefore, let's be... I'd also like to see more edible things being planted. I, I can't understand why you plant an uh, ornamental cherry tree when you could plant one that's going to have fruit all over it. It just seems to make no sense to me at all. Um, we've got an awful lot of grass, which serves a, a, a limited purpose and could be, could be managed in different ways. There's there no kind of vertical planting going on. There's no sort of real interaction with a space like that, except in a limited uh, respect. Um, there's um, a Danish author called uh, uh, Tor Nortander, who uh, basically says, if, if, uh, if nature is so diverse, why is civilization so monotonous? <laughs> And what he's referring to really is the way that we, we, we tend to put managed planting into places. We could have so much more diversity. We could look at things on different levels. Um, I think there's well, loads of ways that you could change our public spaces to make people more engaged with them. Um, I suppose you were saying earlier about you know, uh, creating areas where, uh, that were wild but were also dangerous when we were talking through here. I suppose grassland is easy to manage, it's easy to police, and it's, but it's, it's pretty dull really, isn't it? I mean, I think there's a real, and this is so pertinent right now, and it's actually something that affects all of us because these are our parks, so you know, we need to stand up and speak about them, is this problem between trying to manage the economics of it. The cuts are huge. Birmingham is actually looking where I come from, is looking at closing. It cannot afford to run its parks. How do you make money out of a park other than, you know, putting on lots of festivals and whatnot? And I think that that's a very complex issue that's not being given enough kind of political discussion, I think. But we, we probably get the parks we deserve. I mean, we all vote and we all have a chance of getting at our local councillors and complaining if our local park isn't looked after. And 
perhaps we've all just become a little bit... I, I think all of us, actually, um, on the panel here, have slightly said, well, I can't deal with the government. I can't deal with the council. I'm just going to do it myself in the, own, in the place I have. And perhaps, in a way, um, you know, we're all guilty of that, of having our own front and back garden, which we can make however we want it, our pot of geraniums, um, you know, the basil on the kitchen windowsill. But, you know, how many of us are actually joining demonstrations to say we love our parks? Because actually, that is the thing that makes Britain, particularly England, really special, is the public urban open space. And yet, you know, so rarely do you hear of anyone... There, there, there is a campaign get to get London National Park status, isn't there? there? Is, it's never yes. going to get full National Park status because yes. obviously how it would affect building regulations and things like well, that. No, it but could happen. There's no, as far as I understand it from my technical urban planning point of view, there's no reason why London couldn't become a national park. It doesn't mean you can't build, but it does mean that the sort of spaces that you're creating have a value and a status in the I, planning I think system. there's a, bit, a big difference um, between... obviously parks as a zone and, and thinking of the city as an entire park. I'm less passionate about those parks that, 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 that we've been talking about for a moment because they, they are at least recognised as parks even if they're pretty neglected. They're, they're, and even if they're closed, I would suggest we don't yet live in, a, in an era where parks are being built all over, that the desperation for construction space hasn't reached those limits. So for, for me, the exciting thing is to think of streets... And, and spaces that are not classified as parks yet, to, to think of them as potential green spaces. Um, now, the, 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 the trend in London, um, where there's funding and, and, and uh, a degree of excitement, of course, is for pocket parks. And, and part of me is excited about, about that. Um, they, they often attract the, the kind of art world as well, the, the, the architects and the landscape designers, because the, the politicians and Transport for London provide a lot of money for these. And, and the idea is they could be right next to the road. They might even take up a, a car parking space. There's a, a beautiful installation um, on Tooley Street, um, just near London Bridge at the moment. Um, but the, the problem with these is that they, they do tend to be quite short-lived, intentionally short-lived. They're, they're experimental. And even the ones that are set out to be more permanent, like the ones the Edible Bus Stop have built, um, are very expensive for the amount of space that, it is, that is being enhanced. You know, we're talking of tens of thousands of pounds, where it needn't be like that. As, as Wendy has said, removing some paving slabs, opening up some soil... Um, and I can give you encouraging news from Camden that a, a gorilla gardener there um, on, on um, I think it's Renfrew Road, removed a few illicitly and, and Camden got on side and removed a lot more. And that, that is a tremendous example of a, of a street full of irises and hollyhocks and Jerusalem artichokes and, and all sorts, very straightforward and, and, and joyful. And that, that's where the emphasis should be, just opening up the ground where many hands can then get, get to work where the monotony that comes from management of a space like a park where there's a clear department fades away because it just becomes the responsibility of the, those who live there. Just look at Los Angeles, look at their, their, their parkways where you are, you are responsible for the pavement green space outside your house. And, and gorilla gardeners over there have recently succeeded in allowing edibles to be you know, obvious edibles rather than the more subtle edibles that, that uh, you were describing to, to be grown there too. And I think it's great that if Los Angeles, uh, you know, a motor city, a city that's known for extravagance and sprawl can, can lead the way, then why can't we do it in London? We've got a better climate. Um, I'm, I suppose I'm interested, Richard, in how... Because Often with community groups and things like this, there's a great deal of interest at the beginning. Um, and then you have this natural kind of, um, you know, people begin to fall off or they get interested in the next thing, whether it's knitting or, you know, whatever, whatever the, the direction they're going off. How do you manage to keep your guerrilla spaces kind of... How do you manage to keep people there and how do you manage to keep on top of all the maintenance? Be because it's not set up like a group. It's not set up as a club uh, and as an organisation in that sense. Um, it, it's typically an individual who might do a bit and inspire someone nearby to do the same, to join in. And, and, and if it's 
if it's very inspiring, then yes, a group might form around it. But that, that for me, is the most sustainable um, way of doing it. And when, when I travel around meeting people, um, that, that's generally their story. Um, now, it, it was in the news last year because the Turner Prize was awarded to um, the architects um, working with Granby 4th Street in, in Liverpool. Um, now, the environment that they worked in was streets due for demolition that the remaining residents had planted up. And it was the gardening in the streets that was the most visible sign to anyone who came there that this wasn't a demolition site, that people still live there, that there was life in the streets. Um, and that, that, that gardening, which was a few individuals to start with, eventually led to a community land trust being formed and outsiders um, being, being invited in to help them and eventually reclaim houses. Um, the Arts Council has just given them 200 grand to turn a derelict house into uh, a winter garden, which, which for me is hugely satisfying to see. Um, I've I visited a few times, but to think how the gardening initially was that act of defiance um, and is now still playing a really huge part in, in transforming um, a, a community right on the edge. So. The quick answer, I've given a long-winded one, is just make the space available. C remove those paving slabs. And if we live in a, a, an urban environment that accepts a bit of wildness and a bit of mess, then if no one does anything, that doesn't matter either. The weeds, nature will do something. Um, and, and if there's a resident who wants to tame it and nurture it and, and bring more out of the soil, then, then great. That, that action will lead to others taking part. Um, and we just need to get rid of that, that culture of fear, the culture that makes people feel they're not permitted to do it, um, and, and it, would, it would thrive. Um, and, I mean, I suppose that sort of touches on your world, because persuading people to forage, there's a lot of fear around that. There's fear that they're going to kill themselves, but there's also... Um, <laughs> which, you know, there are, there are moments where you could, that's for sure. Um, but it was also about that idea of permission and who's allowed to do what in green spaces, and I wonder if you have... Some, so how, how do you find that people are terrified? How do you encourage people to go out and forage? Um, I think the idea of foraging in urban environments is, is, is a peculiar concept to a lot of people, but I, I, I take small groups into generally their, their, their local urban green space and surprise them, often shock them by the amount of stuff that's just growing and that is on their doorstep. And I think, um, I think hiding in plain sight would be a good description of a lot of the things that we've got in our city. I'm, I am interested in this whole idea of permission because it kind of comes across all your work very much, which is, and like you say, just attitude of just getting up and having a go. Um, and how, how do you encourage the likes of these people here to get up and have a go? What are your... What are your tips for just go out and do it? Is that what you're saying? How do you, I mean, yeah. Obviously a bit different from foraging to gardening. So um, in terms of encouraging people to go out and forage in the city, I'd encourage you to come out with me for the day. <laughs> <coughs> and, uh, or go out with somebody who knows what they're doing or to go in gently, you know, and, and, to, and to not, like with lots of things, not try and overwhelm yourself. I think if you can identify a dandelion, then you can produce a wine and a vinegar and a salad and an edible green, and you can make a coffee from the roots. And if you were to learn uh, one plant that was wild, that was growing prolifically around you, just one plant every month, then you'd have... Uh, 12 plants, but that maybe have four different edible crops each. So you might have 50 different new foods that you could experiment with. And of those 50 different foods, you could find five different recipes for each one. You've got 250 different things that you can play with. And um, it comes back to this idea of the fact that our diet is very monotonous and a lot of the way that we... Uh, I look at the planting in cities and things like that, I think is quite monotonous. And, and um, I just think there's a lot more variety out there. Um, I get permission, by the way, for the walks that I run in the parks, but then what I do is I abuse that permission. <laughs> so what I do is I get permission from one of the park's authorities to run a walk in their park, and then I run sort of three or four walks in, in that park. But it's just getting them to understand initially um, 
like Victoria Park, for example, when I first ran a walk there, I had to jump through all sorts of hoops. I had to fill out risk assessments. I had to do all sorts of different things. I had to put together this huge document about... Because they were concerned about my environmental impact on Victoria Park. And on the day that I ran the, fest, that I ran, ran the walk, there was me and 12 slightly nerdy people looking at flowers while Field Day Festival was on, which is 30,000 people <laughs> jumping up and down and drinking and going to the loo, and there's us along the edge. And I'd had to fill out basically the same paperwork. So um, I, it, it, about breaking down prejudices to things, and obviously there's arguments about toxicity and pollution and things like that in urban environments, but then I think if you look at... Um, I've gone on a bit of a tangent here, haven't I? Shall I carry on? Um, if, if, if you look at the... Uh, soil quality uh, versus, say, soil quality in the countryside. Lots of our, our, our parks, lots of our, our green spaces in London are historically documented green spaces since before the Industrial Revolution. And they haven't been systematically sprayed with masses of herbicide and fungicide and pesticide and, and what's the stuff they're banning all over Europe that we're happy to use here? Gly glyphosate. Glyphos Roundup. Yeah, exactly, Roundup. So um, I, I think with a bit of education uh, and, a, and a little bit of sort of generosity of spirit to the concept of urban foraging is actually an urban gardening and, and growing food in urban environments. I think we're kind of prejudiced against it because we think countryside good, natural, wonderful, city bad, polluted, and I really don't think that's the case. I think you need a kind of a change of viewpoint. I mean, the funny thing about that whole countryside urban thing is that actually there's access to a lot more open green space in the city than there ever is in the countryside, which is largely owned and mm. not free for people. So in a lot of ways, we have a very democratised sort of green space in cities. I, I think the other... Well, I would give people, to answer your question, I would say that um, have faith in the sort of incorrigible fecundity of plants because the chances are, wherever you sprinkle seeds, wherever you just shove in a pansy, it's likely more than not to grow, you know, even if it's on Oxford Street. And, um, and I think the other thing is that um, foraging or growing in an urban situation, I am surrounded, Oxford Street, which is 10 minutes walk from me, has already this year exceeded its pollution levels for 2016. So, you know, my garden is subject to um, the, the worst thing is um, the particulates, very fine matter from diesel engines. But actually, you can wash it off produce, so it's not difficult. And at least when I go into my garden and pick a lettuce or a tomato, I know where it's been. And I know that no, I put no chemicals on it whatsoever. But if I buy a package of something imported from Peru, though I have nothing against Peruvian farmers, I don't know what's happened to it. But, you know, you could bet your bottom dollar it's had chemicals put on it. You don't know how cleanly it's been picked. You don't know what other chemicals have been put in the packaging to protect it. You don't know what varieties have been chosen purely for looks and longevity and not for taste. And you know, if you've ever pulled a carrot up from a little plant pot and just crunched it, you know that it is completely different to buying a carrot, even in the fanciest um, you know, farmer's market that you could find in central London. And you know, I, I think that it's about knowledge of the, the means of production, which is really important. Isn't there a, a little community growing project just around the back of Oxford Circus? Near Centre Point, isn't there? There's a, a lovely little wild garden there. Um, I ha it may be in St Giles, which is a, yeah. little bit, a little bit away from me. Does someone know Phoenix. about it? That's the one, yeah, yeah. It's lovely little spot. Yeah. yeah, you see, I don't know about that, and I live a mile away from that. Yeah, I mean, that's the joy of walking around London, isn't it? That you, once you walk around it and you really begin to explore it. Well, I walked past the entrance to Gillespie Road Nature Park uh, most days for about six years before I walked in there. And I walked in and I went, 
oh my God, look what I've been missing. I'm supposed to be like an urban forager. And this is it's, it's amazing, absolutely amazing place. Sandwiched between the railway line and Arsenal Football Stadium. Mm. And it's got wildflower meadows. It's, it's extraordinary. It's got the ponds. It's a yeah, wonderful spot. Um, Richard, I was wondering, uh, on this whole note, because we're now trying to persuade everybody to go out and start um, gardening everywhere, which is a good thing, what plants would you... You know, a city is a very particular environment. You have mm -hmm. things like island heat effect, you have lots of pollution, you've got watering issues, you've got all sorts of things battling against them. What are your kind of top uh, indestructibles? Um, well, indestructibility isn't always my, my motivation. I quite enjoy being out there tending something a bit vulnerable. It means if it succeeds, it's all the more satisfying. So um, some... some Plants that I really enjoy growing, if I can redefine the question. Um, let's start with sunflowers. Um, gorilla gardeners out there, those who follow me should know by now that May the 1st is International Sunflower Gorilla Gardening Day, um, which I, I, I see as a, a wonderful global art project um, initiated by some gorilla gardeners in Brussels many years ago who were a group of um, artists, graduates, who, who wanted something fun to do together. And the idea is very simple. Sow a sunflower seed... Um, on or around May the 1st, although I, I tend to do it a lot earlier these days because it's pretty dry by then. Um, and what I, I love about that is that the, it, it is high risk. They're, they are very vulnerable um, for, for months um, before they become the, the icon that, that, that even a fool would recognise is a sunflower. It is, it is such an icon. Um, and, and, and so, yeah, they, and they work in tree pits. These, these aren't about, you know, growing them on the windowsill and planting them out. Just get the seeds in the ground. Um, a, a group down in Newcross um, called Grow Wild have been doing this um, for, for a while now. So anyone who's driven um, along there in the height of summer cannot help but have been cheered by these incongruous giants coming out of abandoned tree pits near the post office, outside the college, in, in shabby old planters down there. Um, I, I would encourage everyone to, to take up that plant. Um, lavender. Um, so many people tell me that they struggle with this plant, but then I discover that they're trying to grow it in a container and they're probably overwatering it. But um, the good thuggish standard Lavandula angustifolia which I buy in bulk from New Covent Garden Flower Market, um, thrives in London. Um, historically, South London was where it was grown agriculturally anyway. And, and our lavender field um, has been doing very well. We, we also make money from it, um, so it's our cash crop. We harvest it in the summer. Um, Californian poppies, um, I'm a big fan of as well. Calendula, you know, hardy annuals that, that self-seed and, and spread. Um, beyond where you've actually sown them. We, we had a huge triangle. Our most public, uh, well, I know, our most central gorilla garden was at south side of Blackfriars Bridge. Um, and it was there for about eight years. It's also just been cleared away by the road improvement scheme. Um, but before um, clearing it away, I, I saved loads of the calendula seeds from it. Um, and it lives on now um, behind an estate in the Elephant and Castle. The calendula are, are already making an advance. So, yeah, cheerful but mm. resilient plants are, are, are what I like. And, and the fact that quite a lot of what, and probably everything I've mentioned except the Californian poppies is, is, is a popular plant with a forager, I would imagine. The, 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 the California yeah, uh, no, I don't think. Good. Yeah, the Eschalosia. I mean, it's not. It's not the papava. It's a different. No, I it's, I don't, it's, I I'm not it sure it would be. Good to eat. But um, <laughs> I was you planting. Can try it first. I was planting Brugmansia this morning. I just. I'll let, I'll let that one float. Look it up afterwards, just to see what that does to you if you if you eat it. <laughs> um, uh, the lovely thing about those selections, they're all particularly good for wildlife as well. Yeah which is a nice consideration. And um, uh, Wendy, I wonder what, what does really well on your... Because um, a rooftop's quite a specific environment it to grow is. in. I've got six inches of soil in raised beds, so it's a very small amount of soil. It's high up, so it's windy. We get lots of sunlight, which you wouldn't get in an urban garden at ground level. Um, and the plants that do well are often Mediterranean plants. Um, but even though we're high... I quite like to go higher. So I think anything that goes up mm. is really good because it gives you more space for the crop. 
lots of things like peas that you buy are designed to be harvested by a pea combine harvester. And of course, you can't get one of those up our stairs. So the tall ambassador peas, the, the, the tall French beans, um, wild celery, which just, you can't get rid of it. You can use the, you don't use the stalks, you use the, the leaves in salads and the flowers and the seeds. So it's one of those crops that you can take all year round which is another benefit. And then I think the last one, I would say, is tomatoes, because that, that dry... That there's no tomato blight anywhere near us. That's one great advantage <laughs> of being um, a, a, you know, a sole gardener in my area. Um, uh, but they grow beautifully up there, and my last tomatoes we generally have for Christmas lunch. Mm-hmm. That's very impressive. Um, and what should people be looking out for foraging right now? What are your kind of... Uh, right now... Or, or coming into Magnolia this... petals. Oh, lovely. So I'm doing lots of things with those at the moment. If you pick magnolia blossoms, they taste like uh, ginger meets chicory meets celery. <coughs> and a really versatile thing. And, you know, and you can, you can take half a dozen flowers off a tree and it's absolutely not going to miss them and they're very, very prolific and we've got hundreds of different species, haven't we? And tons of them are out right now. Um, the blossoms on cherry plum uh, always come out quite early and at the moment, uh, if you pick those off, they've got a sweetness and then a kind of almond oil essence to them, which is really nice. You can make syrups and sauces and all sorts of things. Uh, lots of different types of wild garlic are coming through at the moment. It's crow garlic. Well, if it's in your garden, it's chives. If it's in the wild, it's crow garlic. But it's pretty much the same thing. Um, I mean, I, I pick a, a, a real mixture of wild plants, feral plants, invasive plants, intentionally planted but accidentally edible plants. So... Uh, Common lime trees will start to come into leaf at some point and they have a really good edible leaf and then they'll start to produce an edible blossom. The ones that I like, the plants that I really like, are the things that give me multiple crops throughout the year. Um, something like wild garlic tends to give you... It gives you five different edible crops, but it gives them to you in a space of about two months. So that's a fantastic plant. You've got edible leaves, edible stems, you've got edible bulbs, you've got little, little edible white flowers, and when they drop off, you've got these beautiful little uh, green seeds, which you can then caper, and you can make wild garlic capers. The, the only problem with wild garlic capers is sharing them, because they're just absolutely delicious. Um, what else am I picking at the moment? It's just constant, really. People say, how often do I go foraging? And I'm, I'm in a permanent state of foraging. Whether I'm actually picking something or not, it, it's a never-ending process. And what do you think about... Because there has been a lot of um, controversy around people over-picking areas, particularly mushroom hunting in various parts of London and whatnot. How, where, where do well, you... I don't do any city fungi. I don't, one thing I don't do is advocate that people uh, start picking something that's primary function is to, to absorb and disseminate toxicity in an urban environment. I do come across people foraging in Victorian cemeteries for mushrooms, and, and uh, I think that's a really bad idea if you think what might be in a Victorian cemetery in terms of arsenic, mercury, lead, things like that. Um, what was the question? Well, I, do you, I, <laughs> I suppose you think... I mean, there is, there is foraging... The foraging is fantastic, and I really, as you know, I'm a big forager myself, and I promote foraging because yep. it's a great way to understand your plants and yep. to have, give stories and meaning around those plants. Yep. But if everybody goes and forages, we have a problem because... <laughs> Do we? Hasn't Bristol banned blackberry picking? They are, they are indeed. I, I don't know. I mean, mankind's a keystone species. We should be involved with nature. We should be involved with these things. The, the, you know, the idea of wilderness where there's no people is a complete construct anyway, isn't it? <laughs> I really think that people should be foraging. They should be actively involved 
in doing things with green spaces and picking plants and you know you cut grass down it doesn't prevent it coming back you you cut it and cut it and cut it and grass keeps on growing and keeps on growing i don't think foraging has a detrimental effect on plants i think if anything it has it has a positive effect it's, There's it's certainly pruning. no it's pruning yeah isn't it? and when you come to mushroom hunting as well i mean mushroom hunting is this bizarre thing that everybody has an opinion on regardless of how little they know about the topic i get people writing to me it's so selfish you've stolen all the mushrooms they're not going to come back well they are going to come back you know it's the fruit of a perennial organism taking a mushroom isn't going to prevent it fruiting again as as you know full well so i think there's a little there's a lot of prejudices surrounding it there's a there's a lot of nonsense written in the press especially about mushroom hunting around about September. There's a lot of very lazy desktop journalism. There's people who've never got out from behind their desktop in King's Cross, but have got an opinion about what's going on in the New Forest. And, um, and it's always got a slightly racist undertone to it as well. You see uh, an English guy with a basket full of blackberries, and congratulations are in order. But you see somebody who might look vaguely Eastern European coming over here stealing our mushrooms. <laughs> Sorry, I climbed onto my soapbox there slightly, didn't I? I, I mean, I suppose that with all of these things, it's about, uh, it's about knowledge, isn't it? If you forage wisely and correctly, then that's no problem. But if you just... You can pick a mushroom and it will never come back if you don't understand. I think, there's, I think there's a kind of myth about people who are commercially foraging being some sort of evil entity where they're actually probably more interested in sustainability than anybody else because they're interested in being able to carry on doing that year after year. So rather than wanting to go into the countryside and sort of rape it of all its wonderful, wonderful wild garlic or mushrooms or whatever, they're actually actively involved in wanting those areas to come back. Yeah. I think there's a, there's a kind of rift going on between Natural England and the foraging community at the moment, but we're, we're talking. Good. Which is good. <laughs> yes, it's always a good point. It comes back actually to the very beginning of this whole talk, which is why the Impressionists love gardens so much, was that it's, it's the urbanisation, it's the amount of people that we have here. And um, I suppose one of the things I'd like to go on to is the private space. Because out of if you go through the exhibition, interestingly, um, Moni and Ren Renoir had great gardens because they were wealthy enough. And everybody else just rented them and looked upon them and painted them because they were penniless painters that didn't have the, the money for um, private space. But what we do know about our private gardens is that there's less of them, that there's garden grabbing, and, um, and that new developers are making smaller and smaller spaces. Um, and I wonder what your wishes were for future... I mean, if you, could have, if you could have whatever you wanted for future gardeners, what would you give them? What I, give. I would pull down every every garage in the country. A complete waste of space because a garage will, you could actually have a lovely vegetable pot where your garage is. You know, it's, it's a big piece of space. It's extraordinarily wasteful. Cars these days don't need to be in hermetically sealed spaces. They're fine on the street. And um, I see so many new housing estates where the garage isn't just overshadowing the front garden, it's pushed back so you can have about four cars in your driveway, and the garage is pushed back into a tiny little back garden. Now, I think I really cringe when I see that because it's not just about the plants not being able to grow in the shade, it's about your children not being able to play in a back garden because it's so overshadowed by high fences and garages, I'd get rid of the lot. I, I'd get rid of the private gardens and, <laughs> and um, I'd, keep, I'd keep the garages. Uh, I'd advocate everyone has my lifestyle, basically. This is the lifestyle of the high-rise, where um, we, we have a communal balcony. This is 10 storeys up in the air. It's about a quarter of the size of this room, so 10 flats get to share it. We can harvest together, we can eat together, we have a fantastic view of London, we've got fresh air up there above the Elephant and Castle, um, and a communal corridor for children to play in. Um, but the gardening effort beyond that space, um, which is done in the street, uh, can not only be enjoyed by us, but can be enjoyed by everyone. Um, it means we don't need to sprawl out across um, the countryside, which means we can leave national parks where they belong, which is 
out of cities rather than inside them, which I think devalues what national parks are all about. Um, and we can tuck our cars underneath those high-rises um, and build above them. Um, I would have thought you could put a garden on the, on the roof of a garage if, if, like me, your car will melt should it be outside. Um, mine was built by British Leyland, so it, it definitely needs a garage. <laughs> OK, so we have lots of towers. What would you like? Isn't the irony of the modern garage that everybody parks their expensive cars on the street and then fills their garage with junk that's worthless? Absolutely. Most of the garages underneath our, our, our block um, are, don't have cars in. Mine have mezzanine, so I can keep materials, tools. In fact, the lavender harvest um, dries out on the mezzanine level above the car. Um, so that at late, um, late summer, if you walk past um, the front of our block, you get wafts of lavender oil um, blowing out across the uh, Elephant Castle. And what would you, what would you give to, to foragers and gardeners? How would you like to see... I mean, if you could give anybody anything in terms of... That's very generous. I can give anybody anything. Yeah, why not? No, um, did you did you go and look at the High Line? You lived in New York. What did you think of the High Line? I think the High Line is a fantastic thing. So I, I think it would be nice to create some spaces where people have got some better views as well. Everything is quite low down, and I'm sure we've got in, in London. I mean, I think it was a big shame with, with King's Cross that they knocked down the gas towers, because apart from the fact I thought they were beautiful... Um, I wondered if we could have done something with that. I'd, I, my, I mean, my only knowledge about gardening really is to do more with permaculture than anything, and I just think about the, the fact that everything isn't grown on one level. It's grown on multiple levels, and you're making use of all sorts of different spaces. There's, um, is it Fenchurch Street? There's a huge... Uh, a vertical wall of green with all manner of different plants growing out of it. I'd like to see a lot more of that. I mean, we've got, we've got, you say about garages, we've got lots of opportunities for vertical planting and for adapting things and for growing things up lampposts or tree. I mean, just some more imagination, really. Coming back to the guy saying that, you know, civilization is very monotonous in terms of the way that we approach we approach gardening and the way that we approach our it's very predictable really what we're doing in a lot of ways and then there's little pockets of people like yourselves doing something that's actually more interesting but i think the majority of people aren't approaching these things with in a very tangential way and is that damien over there so he is, this guy here, he's, in, um, he's uh, head of the Mabley Green Users Group and he's been campaigning for years and now successfully with funding to, to create an, an edible park almost underneath a flyover in the East End. So well done, Damien. <laughs> <laughs> yes, indeed. Just, I think just some more tangential thinking about the, the opportunities that, uh, that a city presents, really. Yes, or maybe yeah. the garages stay and people and you, you, you plant on garage roofs. Because I thought initially when you said garages, you were talking about petrol garages. And I was just thinking about, you know, that lovely pl horrible platform they've all got that could be planted on as well. So, yeah, lots of opportunities, really. I mean, I think that's where um, horticulture is becoming a very exciting subject, actually, because when you take horticulture and you put it with very interesting kind of high-end engineering and you have things like sustainable urban drainage and whatnot which means that you look at the city greening up the city so that it's ecology and the city works efficiently then there's a huge exciting expanse to be explored it it should be yes it should be but um far too often it's just used as a piece of marketing a green garnish on an otherwise unsustainable development or, or worse still so much of what, what's built around me is used um, to, to garnish it at planning stage and then when it gets built it it isn't there I mean we only have to look at the the, the, the sky garden I had a chat with some of the gardeners up in the sky garden in the in the is it the Fenchurch tower the walkie-talkie who is moaning about how impossible it is to garden up there because it's so cold and actually shady because of the structure of the building he was sort of berating it that this this so-called public green space at the top um, that, that um, should have been of benefit to everyone, whether it's ticketed or not, was very difficult to garden. Did in. you tell him to use his imagination and plant something different? Well, they, would, they had an expectation for it to have a, a permanent wow, and I think it was difficult to go get those conditions in cold shade. Um, as for the garden bridge, or I believe it might end up being called the Sky Garden Bridge, or Garden Sky Bridge, or whatever. I mean, that is destroying as much green space in the city uh, as it is creating it, because of the mature trees and, and lawn that is, is 
proposed to be cleared away on the, on the South Bank. So that, that is a scandal. That is a complete misunderstanding of what the High Line in New York gave. That, that, that was a wild space that um, was, was made tame and habitable so that it could be used as a park, whereas the Garden Bridge is just um, a, a giant trophy for our current mayor. Well, it's a, it's a tree museum, isn't it? I mean, it's, it's just put taking nature and putting it somewhere where no one else wants it sort of thing. And, and I agree with you. It's, it's not a very sustainable design. And um, a footbridge across the river, fantastic. Mm, mm. You know, the Millennium Bridge, amazing. But to have something that requires so much mm. looking after... Mm. It's it does the, seem to me to be very strange. It's the ultimate pocket park, and in a, in a bad way. Um, very expensive, not sustainable, and done for marketing reasons as a tourist attraction, our Chancellor admits. Um, and greenery and greening, greening cities and, and the, the way greenery is used by artists and, and architects and designers like Thomas Heatherwick is, is, is because we live in an era where we feel that urge, we feel that need, whether it's urbanization or being detached from, from, from nature through our day jobs, that there is that itch to have that, but it's so frustrating to see it being done in a way that is utterly superficial and so misunderstanding of what would genuinely satisfy our souls. Um, I, I don't think the Garden Bridge will do it. It will, it will make a, a nice postcard. I, it's, I mean, it's difficult. If you look into the history of parks, actually, a lot of the parks that we would now hold so dear to us were so controversial, and they. That's the excuse that they all use. It's like only the brave would would allow this to happen. But but there are a lot of terrible ideas that never happened because they were all so stupid. <laughs> well, you know, I'm not going to argue with that. But um, it's it it's a difficult one because. I can see the arguments uh, for and against it on both sides, but one of the things I think is important is that, regardless of whether you like it or not, it's put horticulture, a subject that really didn't get many, you know, or much interest. It's made it a talking point. Whether it gets built, whether you like it, put those things aside. Actually, everybody is now discussing what parks should look like, what they want them to. So in that way, I think it's been an incredibly positive thing. Because it's, it's a potentially very expensive and destructive conversation starter about gardens, <laughs> yes. <laughs> Maybe. I, I'm sure there are other ways to get people talking about gardens than, than well, the bridge. But name, name one that would get that well, many... Well, the, the current exhibition in the, the Tate Turbine Hall, a completely different you know, take on it, but as a piece of contemporary urban art that's um, about growing things. Uh, I think it's fascinating. Um, I'm, not a, I'm not a huge fan of it because it, 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 it could be so much more. It, it's, a, it's fascinating that this is a lot of land gathered from across London, from, from very specific places that are listed in, in the credits. Lots of community parks, allotments, schools, all sorts. Um, and then assembled, I'm sure you all know of it, assembled in their triangles um, and then left in, in the depths of winter inside um, with some inadequate heating and lighting to, to see if they'll germinate. Um, but, but it could have been so much more exciting had it, had it been exhibited at the other half of the year where nature was on its side. And, and if this, these bits of public land were actually publicly accessible rather than turned into a, a giant private enclosure... Um, where, where you can't get up close to, to look at it or to help it along its way. Um, I, I went down with a, a friend uh, and my family to, to seed bomb it um, because there was a reference to seed bombing in the description. Um, and, and that was an experiment to see whether anyone in the, in the gallery would intervene. And of course they did. Um, we had layers of security coming up to us, wondering you know, what's going on, to which our response was, no, 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 it's fine, it's all part of the exhibition, you know, it's fine, it's fine. And eventually, I mean, they didn't obviously believe us, but eventually we did reach um, uh, someone very senior who was delighted, absolutely thought this was brilliant, and we, we were filming it. Uh, it's on YouTube, you can have a look. And we were using Californian poppies. Um, but I wanted to be able to go back and not just chuck seeds on it. I mean, seed bombing's fun, but it's the most hit and miss of any guerrilla gardening technique. I much prefer to get a trowel and you know, get up close, but we couldn't. 
Um, so it, it, it was a piece of, it's a piece of art, it's, it's still there, that, that for me is full of tension and ultimately is a very depressing symbol of the fertility that we're all standing on here in London because this soil is put in such a hostile environment um, and we can't even identify with where the soil came from because those triangles are not labelled. You know, why didn't they have a, a, an app? So you could look over in that far corner and cheer on Tottenham or cheer on wherever, you know, you related to because you could see that it was doing better. Instead, it's just this bleak, fairly ugly, very organised as well, very organised map of, of um, the, the failure of London. Makes us but feel like we need a garden <laughs> bridge, doesn't it? Can I give... Can I, can I bring us back to positivity? <laughs> because I think we're... Um, we're in danger of forgetting something which is incredibly pertinent to where we are in the exhibition that you've probably all seen today or in the past few weeks. And that, you know, being in a garden is a lovely experience, you know, and, and you know, especially in June or July with the sun shining. Um, uh, but the paintings in the exhibition um, and, and where artists are so brilliant is that they can... Um, create that that feeling of being in a garden and what it really means very deep down. You know, I was very touched. I didn't realise that Monet's paintings were done during the First World War, when his son was fighting in the war, when he could hear the bombs on the battlefield from where he lived in Giverny. And I think that conceptual side that artists bring is really, really important because we're or rather from the, um, um, the sort of agit-prop side of, of the gardening world. Um, but, you know, artists can do it quite gently. And, you know, we're all incredibly moved by a lot of those paintings. And that's still happening today. And, and artists being involved in making gardens and painting gardens and making pieces of work, like the work in the tape, be it good, bad or indifferent, sort of doesn't matter. It makes you think. Thank you for listening. For more information about the Royal Academy, please visit www.royalacademy.org.uk.